Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Clinician's Brief, the podcast, the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and today we're going to be talking about analgesia for surgical pain in cats. Joining us for this discussion is Dr. Tamara Grubb, an adjunct professor of veterinary anesthesia and analgesia at Washington State University. Dr. Grubb recently shared her top five drugs for perianesthetic analgesia in the April-May 2021 edition of Clinician's Brief. Welcome to the program, Dr. Grubb. Thank you very much, Dr. Watson. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk more about pain management. It's my absolute favorite, and I love Clinician's Brief, so I'm very, very excited to be here. Well, we are very excited to have you. Before we begin, would you tell your audience a little bit about your background? I heard you have some really exciting news. I do. Thanks for asking. You know, I think like so many of us in the veterinary profession, I've worn a lot of hats, which is one of the things I love about our profession. There's so many opportunities. And I have been in mixed practice. I have been in academia. I have been in industry. I own my own consulting company now. So really lots of uh, experience throughout the the profession. And my exciting news is that I was just elected, president-elect, for the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management. And I am so excited about that. Pain management really is, that's my favorite thing to focus on. So I'm I'm very honored to be their, their upcoming president. That's wonderful. Congratulations to you. And we're excited to talk about analgesia as well, especially in cats. So this article that you have written is just packed with very practical information about these important medications. But before we go into the drug classes, what are some reliable ways to really assess perioperative pain in cats? (laughs) Now, Dr. Watson, did you just (laughs) use the words reliable and cats in the same sentence? I think I I might have. (laughs) I might have. (laughs) Is that an oxymoron? (laughs) (laughs) We all know cats, right? As soon as we think something's reliable, then it's not. It's an incredibly important question for everybody to think about in our practice, because even if we we really we're, we're doing really excellent pain management, pain is an individual sensation. So in any given cat, even your best anesthetic analgesic protocol may not be enough analgesia for that cat. So we should be pain assessing cats. And of course, with both acute and chronic pain, A change in behavior from pre-pain stimulus is really one of the biggest signs that the pet is in pain. So today, since we're we're talking about surgical pain, that would mean a kitty that was really friendly when it came in and purring and rubbing on the nurse, and then after surgery is just hiding in the back corner, right, not wanting to be touched. Also getting that pet out and just doing a good physical exam and gently palpating around the pain area, like around the incision to to elicit a response very gently um, and respectfully. And then using pain scoring systems, you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to use it yet, but that new feline grimace scale that was recently published, and it's an open access scale, that's really amazing. Cat's facial expressions are quite good at at least giving us a clue that, again, we need to get them out of that cage and really you know, put our hands on them. So yeah, watching for that change in behavior, using our pain scoring systems like the facial grimace scale. And if all else fails, if you think the cat is in pain and we've done something painful, then it is probably in pain. 
So we call it asking it with pharmaceuticals. We ask it by giving it a little dose of an analgesic drug, like a little bit of opioid, for instance, and again, assess the response and the change in behavior. And that's sort of the ultimate at this moment. There is a really interesting way to assess pain as well, cutting edge technology. And that is a unit called the Pain Trace from a company called BioTrace It. And that is now being used in both acute and chronic pain. And it, it appears that it can actually quantify pain. So if anybody's interested in that, it, it looks it's really cutting edge technology and just look up the company BioTrace It and see what you think about the pain trends. I'll have to do that right after this episode. That sounds really interesting. Could you comment for us just generally on how cats differ from dogs in their response to some of these commonly used analgesics like opioids and NSAIDs? Absolutely. Of course, cats cannot be small dogs. And you hit the nail on the head. Those are the two most common drug classes where cats are different. In general, many species are... I, and say most cats are similar, but that's not true. Many species have a, a similar response across drugs. But cats with the opioids, some people say cats are more likely to have an excitatory response to opioids than dogs. And it's not necessarily that they have an excitatory response. Some can, but the reality is opioids are less likely to be sedating in cats than in dogs. You know, for those old sick dogs, an opioid alone is often enough for a pre-med, and that's unlikely to be the case in a cat. And then NSAIDs, as we all know, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, cats notoriously metabolize NSAIDs, some insects differently than dogs do, so we have to be more concerned about toxicity. And then, of course, cats are, we don't really know why, obviously, but cats seem to develop chronic kidney disease more than other species and insects can impact that. So we just need to make sure we have good health information on cats before starting insects. And we are going to dip a little bit more in later in the episode about medications to give along with opioids in cats, as well as some more information for clinicians to communicate to owners about insects. So we'll get into those in depth. But Going back to your article, the first drug you talk about is actually gabapentin. So let's start there. I find gabapentin can be kind of a hot topic. So you list it as an analgesic, but also state right in the article that the efficacy of gabapentin for acute pain is not really determined at this point. So why did you feel like it was really important to include gabapentin in your top five? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked that question and that you clarified about the pain management. This, that's such an important point. I do see veterinarians dispensing gabapentin for post-operative pain relief in routine procedures like spays or neuters where the pet doesn't have any underlying pain and sending home only the gabapentin. And I'm just going to tell you, it's unlikely to work. 99.9% uh, .9 unlikely to work as far as what we know about the drug right now, because the main source of pain in those patients I just described is inflammation. And gabapentin doesn't do anything to control pain of inflammation. We need an anti-inflammatory drug. Now, if that that patient had underlying pain, so osteoarthritis, right? And then we did that spay. The gabapentin may play a role in, in controlling the pain, the pre-existing pain. And that's important because pain from any source can amplify pain from another source. 
So these patients with pre-existing pain and surgical pain, they can have a really high pain level. But that's not the reason. Still, still I haven't gotten to it. It's because of the anti-anxiety effects of gabapentin. We know that pain can cause anxiety, obviously. If anybody's been in pain, I hope you haven't. But if you have, you might have been anxious. But also, anxiety can intensify the level of pain experienced by that patient. So it's that vicious circle, right? The pain and the anxiety going round and round. And Cassahar, of course, the, the, the poster species for anxiety. So we see a lot of cats with at least moderate, if not high anxiety. And that can, as we just said, exacerbate that pain response. So by giving that gabapentin ahead of time, not only does it make the whole trip to the veterinary clinic and the whole hospitalization more tolerable for that cat by decreasing that stress level, it can also help control the pain level kind of in a backdoor way. It's not really treating that pain, just making it not ramp up. Right. And I'm glad that you brought up that, you know, we're really using this medication preoperatively. For general practitioners like myself, how do we really handle the logistics of prescribing that? Sometimes, you know, as a general practitioner, the day of an elective procedure may be the first time I even get to examine this cat. So how can we navigate that lack of a VCPR when we want to pre-medicate these patients? Ooh, good logistical question. And you're absolutely right. That can be tough for the owners to find time to come to the clinic to pick something up. And one of my favorite things as a consultant is learning things from other people. When I'm in their practice, I'm always borrowing ideas. And the idea I see happening most often is to talk to the owner at the time they make the appointment for that spay or neuter or whatever the appointment is for and tell them there will be some medications that we would like you to pick up before the procedure next week. So they have seven days. Well, we're not open on Sunday, but there's six days to stop by and pick that up. And sometimes, especially in dogs, we'll add another drug to that, like meropotent or serenia. Um, I hear that called a comfort package a lot, so they're not vomiting and they're calmer. But honestly, it is not a bad idea at all to see that cat to make sure that they really are healthy before we prescribe the gabapentin. Um, just the cat is, looks healthy to the owner, right? It always looks healthy to the owner, but we might find something underlying. I don't know what you've seen done, but I've seen this a lot now with the pandemic, and that is a teleconference with the owner where they get the cat in front of the camera and just say, this is my stressed cat, and you know, this is what it looks like, and I'll pull up his lips, and here's his mucous membrane color, and just kind of getting a feel for the health of that cat. So it's okay if they do have to come in without the gabapentin the first time. It actually can be quite good. For the procedure, though, we do try to give them enough warning that they can come by and pick up some gabapentin. So if that is absolutely impossible, when they get to the hospital, is there any advantage of giving it then? Or are we just, we're too late, we're, they're already ranked up, they're already anxious? Ooh, good point. No, there, there's definitely still an advantage to doing it. You're right that it's later in the game, and so it won't be as effective as it would have been at home before that pet got stressed. So still an option. I tell you what, though, when that patient comes into the practice, and we knew it was going to come in stress, but the owner couldn't come by to pick up medication. And that, I'm with you. That happens a lot. 
Or we didn't know it would be that stress if we'd never met the cat before and like, whoa, this cat really needs some medication. What I try to do is bump that cat up in the surgical order and say, okay, we are going to spay this cat first. Let's get it sedated right now before it Mm -hmm. has time to get more anxious. So our sedative drugs, because they're faster and they're more potent, are a better choice. So I try to just get them sedated. If that's not an option, then yes, I would go ahead and give the gabapentin and then put the kitty in the farthest, darkest, quietest corner of the clinic I could find. I have a very good colleague and friend that calls those kitty minutes. Like, how many kitty (laughs) minutes do I have before this cat goes ballistic on me? (laughs) That's absolutely perfect. And it's usually not very many minutes once they're in the clinic. And so sedation is a good choice. You mentioned in the article that we should be a little cautious and possibly reduce the dose of gabapentin in cats with renal or hepatic disease. Do you have general guidelines on how much we should be reducing that dose or possibly spreading out the frequency of it? Absolutely. And with all drugs, of course, we love to talk about efficacy, but safety is just as important. And since gabapentin is partially hepatically metabolized, but also partially excreted in the kidneys, you're absolutely right. In cats with either renal or hepatic disease, dose reduction is a good option. And this is really more impactful when we're giving gabapentin daily for chronic pain, right? So two to three times a day for long term, and then I definitely reduce the dose. And usually I reduce it compared to a a normal healthy cat by 10 to 20%, depending on how bad that renal or hepatic disease is. So if it's mild, I often don't change anything, but if it's moderate, then a 10% reduction, and if it's... um, boarding on severe than a 20% reduction if that cat would get those drugs at all. You can also, as you said, increase the frequency. And quite frankly, that actually works better for getting these anxious cats into the hospital. So giving a a low dose the night before, and again, a low dose meaning 10% less than I would have given in that cat without renal disease. And then that same dose the morning of travel So we get this lower dose, but the longer administration actually works better, more effective. And then here's the bottom line. It's the cat. It's a cat is so fractious that we can't reduce the dose. Then I either get the high dose or better yet, I start using multimodal anti-anxiety protocols, just like I would use multimodal analgesic protocols. Are there any specific drug interactions that you worry about? So just hypothetically, you have a cat, it's anxious, it needs a dental and tooth extraction, but it's also on fluoxetine for urine marking. (laughs) Well, you described a a big population of cats right there. A very common scenario, isn't it? And such an important thing to remember about the drug interactions, and especially with the with gabapentin, where the the side effect, I'm not going to call it an adverse effect, and I'll be back to that in just a second, but the side effect is sedation. And then with drugs like fluoxetine that can also potentially cause some level of sedation. We absolutely do want to think about that. We don't want to give drugs together that have the same effect, right? Unless we want that effect. So back to the sedation not being an adverse effect. When we're talking about this pre-visit pharmaceutical for the anti-anxiety effects, I don't mind if the patient is a little bit sedate, right? Because that's the goal in the long term anyway. If I'm involved in sedation and anesthesia, if it's that pet at home, that cat at home, and we don't want to sedate cat at home, then it is an adverse effect, right, for the owner. 
then I would definitely decrease my dose of gabapentin. If the fluoxetine is working, just leave it, the, the other drugs working, just leave it alone. And then use a, that 20% reduction of the gabapentin. Totally makes sense. Cause as you said, you know, what's your overall goal? Is the animal coming into the hospital or is this something that the owner needs to be dealing with at home? That's great advice. How many times a day do you search for drug information? 100? 200 times? Let's just say it's a lot. Each of those searches can be done in seconds with plums, and you can trust that the information you find will be accurate and continually updated. And yes, that means no more waiting on the next edition. Plus, Plums has new tools like the Drug Interaction Checker, a first-of-its-kind clinical tool designed to help you make confident decisions when your patient's drug list gets long. See how Plums is trailblazing veterinary support at plums.com. Let's move on to the second class of drugs you discuss in the article. And actually, it's a combination of two drug classes. We're going back to opioids, and you suggested alpha-2 agonists. So why do you recommend giving these drugs in combination when we're dealing with cats? <laughs> yeah, that was pretty classic for me. Somebody asked me to, to pick one, and I have to pick two. Like, I very rarely have one thing in my mind. It's usually somewhere two to three. So I had to pair those together because they're, the effects are synergistic, both for sedation and analgesia. So we said earlier that opioids don't predictably provide sedation in cats and can cause excitement. So with that combination, we get predictable sedation adding in that alpha-2. And then, of course, the alpha-2 agonist class, that's called a sedative analgesic, right? We forget about the analgesia with the alpha-2s. So we also get more profound analgesia. It's just the perfect combination for cats. Well, really for most species, definitely for cats. There are some times that I think you might consider leaving out the alpha-2s, though. What situations would those be? Absolutely. We don't always need that potent of a sedative, right? So let's just pick a, a sicker cat. So um, a cat we're anesthetizing, let's say it has a linear foreign body because cats do that. So it's been vomiting. Uh, we're, we're stabilizing it with IV fluids and need to anesthetize it. And it's lethargic. We don't need that potent of a sedative, right? So we don't need to use the alpha-2 agonist. Or, of course, there are some contraindications with alpha-2s, primarily most forms of cardiac disease. So if the, if the cat had cardiac disease, then I would use another sedative. And what other sedatives could be considered in that cat that has cardiac disease? Oh, good question. So we have a couple of options. Um, and, and all of these, I would add them to the opioid because we still want that sort of synergistic effect. Alfaxalone is a good choice. We think of alfaxalone as an intravenous induction drug because that's what it's used as primarily. But remember, it's well-absorbed IM, and so mm -hmm. we can give it a lower dose IM with the opioid. A touch of ACE promazine is an option. Usually in these sicker kitties, I, I don't choose the ACE because of the longer duration. It has to be metabolized by the liver, where alfaxone has a shorter duration. 
if it was a fractious cat, even just a touch of ketamine along with that opioid, a lower dose than we would give it IV. So we do have some good options for cats. Excellent. Thank you. The third class of drugs in your top five is local anesthetic blocks. So this is wonderful. I personally have just started using these drugs much more frequently in the last few years than I ever did earlier in my career. So I really started with testicular and oral blocks, but I know that there's other things out there. What are some other common techniques that you utilize in cats? I am so glad to hear that you are using local anesthetics. This is my favorite drug class. And excuse me, I have to go on for just a minute about how they work. I know that wasn't part of the question, but I can't help myself. They do what we call block pain in its tracks, right? They block that transmission part of the pain pathway. And the pain pathway, there's transduction, transmission, modulation, and perception. And at transduction, modulation, and perception, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of pain initiators and pain generators and pain propagators. And so it can be more difficult to control pain at those locations. But the cool thing about transmission is pain impulses are transmitted up nerves, just like any other impulse would be transmitted up a nerve. And that is opening of the sodium channels. And that's really almost the only way that painful impulse can, can progress from the periphery to the central nervous system. And what do local anesthetics do? Block sodium channels, right? I mean, it's just an amazing mechanism of action for controlling pain. And you mentioned two of the most common blocks, so the oral or dental blocks, and I hope everybody is using those. Dental pain is horrific. Testicular blocks, one of my absolute favorites. It's so easy and we hear people all the time say, oh, it's just a spay or just a castration. And I think we say that because it's routine to us if we're the surgeon, right? It's fairly easy, but it's not routine to that patient. It is still a painful procedure. And with castration, we are crushing all of the tissues associated with the spermatic cord. And crushing injuries are some of the most painful that our patients can experience. There's a lot of pain mediators released at a crushing injury. And while we're on testicular blocks and cats, I just want to put a shout out for the testicular block for both species. I recently heard several people say, we use testicular blocks in dogs, but not in cats. And one person even said that they thought it was contraindicated in cats. And that is so wrong. And just another way that cats are not getting the analgesia they should. So use those testicular blocks in cats. Another of my favorites is the intraperitoneal lavage, where we are just squirting local anesthetic into the abdomen. I'm not kidding you. Squirting is, in this sentence, a scientific word. We're squirting it in, closing the abdomen, reducing that program hysterectomies and exploratory laparotomies and cesarean sections. There's a really good open access paper on that technique if anybody's interested. So look up intraperitoneal lavage. Um, the epidurals, both lumbosacral and sacrococcygeal, and then blocking limbs like the rum block uh, for blocking the lower limb, the RUMM, um, brachial plexus blocks, blocking uh, the thoracic block if you're putting in a chest tube or taking one out or doing thoracic surgery, but most of us in private practice are not. So really, it's just limitless, the blocks that we can do. Yes, uh, I think... I should be using them quite a bit more than I do, although I'm getting better. I am, I am definitely getting better. 
One of the things that I often see discussed, and I would love your opinion on it, is mixing lidocaine and bupivacaine. Some people think that they want to do this to kind of get the best of both drugs, quick onset, but longer duration. But then I've also heard that that might not be the case and we might actually blunt the duration and onset. So what's your opinion on that? I'm so confused. (laughs) I, you know, every time I think I have the answer, I see a new publication and go, oh, then I'm like, oh, bright shiny objects. That's the new answer. So, you know, and you're right. We used to do that all the time because we want that really fast onset of lidocaine because we think we have to cut right now, right? There's no time to waste right now. Um, but we want that longer duration of bupivacaine or ropivacaine. It's very similar to bupivacaine. But the lidocaine only lasts about 90 minutes, maybe two hours. And we get closer to four hours with the bupivacaine or ropivacaine. And the longer we can block that pain pathway, the lower the overall pain that that patient will feel, right? Let that pain dissipate as that block is wearing off. So we want that long duration. So the concept was very valid. And then some studies came out in human medicine that showed exactly what you just said. You don't get that. You get a longer onset and a shorter duration. So it's really bad to mix. And then just recently, Dr. Peter Pasco, who I really respect uh, out of UC Davis, published a, a paper on local blocks and he mixed the lidocaine and bupivacaine. And what he showed was that the even with the mixture, you get the fast onset of the lidocaine and you get a longer duration than lidocaine alone. Now, he didn't look at the duration of bupivacaine alone, so I can't say if the duration was shortened or not, but the combo was better than lidocaine alone for the fast onset and the long duration, so now I'm confused again. But here is my take-home message for now until we know more is, honestly, bupivacaine and ropivacaine take about 10 minutes for full onset, longer if you're really far away from the nerve, but in all the, the blocks we just talked about, you wouldn't be. So build 10 minutes into your protocol, clip the surgical site, do the rough scrub, do the block, then finish the rough scrub. Then you're getting ready for surgery, you're, you're draping. All, you will, if you do the block at the right time, you'll have enough time for the, the drug to, for onset. So my recommendation is try to do it that way until we know better. And we'll keep an eye out and see what's coming down the pipeline. <laughs> so... Next up, an old favorite, ketamine. Ketamine obviously has a very long-standing role in veterinary anesthesia. How are we utilizing it for perioperative analgesia? Ketamine is really a fascinating drug. You're right, it's an anesthetic at high dosages. At lower dosages, we can use it as a sedative, as we mentioned earlier. And then at these really low doses, they're almost holistic, really. Really low doses, we're using it as an analgesic. And in that instance, the action is in the spinal cord rather than in the brain, right? It's not causing anesthesia. And ketamine plays a really unique role in pain management. So it's very important to consider it for inclusion into your anesthetic or analgesic protocols. At the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, there are receptors called the N-methyl D-aspartate or NNDA receptors. And they're normally dormant or plugged with a, a magnesium molecule. And when pain is really intense or prolonged, so there's a lot of pain neurotransmitters crossing the synapse, that magnesium plug can be extruded. And when those NMDA receptors open, they really amplify the level of pain. That's what we call wind-up or central sensitization or central plasticity. So the patient now is experiencing a lot more pain. 
And that's not a pain that's really, it's not a pain of inflammation. So our anti-inflammatories don't really impact it. That type of pain, that mechanism that causes that can actually cause decreased regulation of the opioid receptors or decreased production of the opioid receptors. So opioids aren't as good. But ketamine is almost miraculous. The ketamine molecule actually goes back into that NMDA receptor and plugs it. I don't know how it knows to go there, but that's what it does. So we say that it's not a true analgesic because what it's doing is is taking out this amplification of the pain signal, but we still want other drugs on board, but it gives them a better chance to work. Hmm. And anytime that we're doing something like uh, anytime that the pain is severe, anytime there's a lot of skin damage like trauma or burns because the skin is so highly innervated, we should really be thinking about that central sensitization. And the other scenario is anytime we're doing something, we're doing acute pain on pre-existing pain. So for me, the classic example is dentistry. The, they've had that painful periodontal disease for some time. So they already have an upregulation of that pain pathway and probably peripheral sensitization. And then we go in and do that dentistry and cause inflammation, do extractions. And yeah, in about five to seven days, maybe 14, depending on how bad it is, that patient will have lower pain, but not immediately post-operatively. It can be horrific. And ketamine can really help in those instances because that acute on chronic or acute on pre-existing pain is a unfortunately very effective way to produce the central sensitization or wind up or central plasticity. So using that ketamine in those scenarios makes a big difference. And it's a really low dose CRI. That's what, yeah, that was going to be my next question. So in this, are we using, because I've, I've actually heard of in some palliative care groups about using low dose ketamine sub Q, but that's kind of a different situation. So you're using a CRI. Could you tell us just quickly the fluids, like, are there any fluids or medications that you should be careful mixing? What fluid do you usually use to make that CRI? Good logistic question. And I'm glad you asked it because I want everybody to make this. The great thing about ketamine is it's really compatible. Another great thing, it's compatible with all of the fluids. So whatever you have, mix it in. You don't have to get sodium chloride. Honestly, I usually just make it in LRS because that's what I have there. And I usually make a small syringe of it and use a syringe pump so there's less waste. You don't have to use a syringe pump. I just, I don't like to throw anything away, right? That's not veterinarian like to throw stuff away. So really any fluid and it's such a low dose that I am not concerned at all about any drug interactions or any medical conditions. So like back to the cats with chronic kidney disease, ketamine is cleared in part unchanged in the, by the kidney, but this is such a low dose with the CRI that I absolutely run it all the time in our kitties with CKD. And then ketamine, if we were giving it with another sedative, it could cause more sedation. And again, usually that's why we're giving it. So that's not a bad drug interaction, just something to remember. It could also cause agitation or dysphoria if it was a sub-anesthetic dose, but a little bit higher than the analgesic dose. So just kind of what you'd expect from ketamine, just watch for it. But honestly, with, at that CRI dose, I've not ever seen an adverse effect. It's, it really is it's so low. Now, a tip for the audience here, if you haven't started CRIs yet, go to IVAPM.org, so International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management.org. And I know I just told you I'm president-elect, but I do not make any money from, it's a, it's a not-for-profit organization. There is an open access CRI calculator on our website 
And again, not costing you any money, it's free. It's under the professionals tab. So go to the professionals tab and you'll see the CRI calculator because I really recommend that everybody doing CRIs use some kind of spreadsheet like that, some calculator, because the math can be, it's so easy to get off on a decimal point, right? It could be micrograms per kilogram or milligrams per kilogram or per minute or per hour. So using a sheet like that is very helpful, but yeah, I think absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I love those, those CRI calculators. Cause like you said, when your dose is in micrograms, you know, per kilogram, but your concentration is in milligrams per mil, it can, it can be a little tricky. So even for people that are very good at math. <laughs> <laughs> right. For sure. Especially even if you're really good at math, but you are in a typical day at your practice where everything's happening at once. Okay. Your final drug category for perioperative analgesia in cats is NSAIDs. So <laughs> looks like we saved the best and maybe the most controversial for last. <laughs> in the U.S., there are two NSAIDs approved for use in cats, and those are ribenicoxib and meloxicam. They both come in oral and injectable forms, but meloxicam is not approved for continued oral use. So how do these two NSAIDs differ? Or do they really, really differ? They do have some differences. First of all, just logistics. Meloxicam is a liquid, and ribenicoxib is a little chewy, kind of, chewy, kind of crumbly tablet. And, you know, depending on the cat, some are easier to give a liquid, but many of them really like that little chewy. It's not spongy, like it's sort of crumbly, but a lot of cats really like that. So logistically, there's a, a consideration. And then rabinococcid, it does clear the blood more quickly um, and goes to the tissues. And so there's a theory that 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 more rapid clearance from circulation may decrease the incidence of organ damage, like kidney damage. That's not been proven. Nobody knows the clinical impact of that, but we do know it's cleared more quickly. And meloxicam, the dose is wrong on the label. And I'm not sure with the research why that meloxicam dose got started really high. Whereas the robinococcid dose, lots of research, really robust studies, safety studies in cats, and that, that label dose is the right dose. So with the robinococcid, we don't have to guess the dose, right? We, we, the research is there and it's the right dose. And I really think that that's what happened to meloxicam. The dose is wrong. And so when the studies were done with repeat dosing, then there were toxicities. Well, yeah, if you overdose any drug, there will be toxicities. So there's, it's, it's hard to get a repeat um, recommendation on meloxicam, an approved one, an FDA approved one, when the label dose is too high. But we do have data from UK and Europe, right, on repeat dosing of both of those drugs for chronic pain. So, Doc, we had mentioned that those two NSAIDs are the only two that are approved for use in cats. What about some of these other medicines, you know, that you've been talking about, that we've been talking about today? Which ones are actually, you know, FDA approved for use in cats in the U.S.? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. That's really important knowledge for the listeners to have. And most of what we do with cats is off-label, including a lot of the anesthetic drugs. But here's some exciting information when we're talking about multimodal analgesia and we're trying to find drugs from different drug classes that work in different parts of the pain pathway, we actually have some good representation for cats in our FDA-approved categories. So dexmedetomidine, we mentioned, is an anal sedative analgesic. It is approved for cats. 
We have an opioid approved for cats, and that's Simbadol. And we also have a local anesthetic approved for cats, back to my favorite, the local anesthetics, and that is Noceta, the 72-hour liposome encapsulated bupivacaine, and then, of course, the NSAID. So we do have some approved options for cats. Are there the same concerns about mixing NSAIDs? And we we definitely know this in dogs. This is a big no-no. Don't mix NSAIDs. You know, don't give one injection and then follow up with a different oral. Do we have those same concerns in cats? Do you know, no research on that. But yeah, especially since cats are, as we've said and kind of alluded to in this conversation, more likely to experience adverse effects than NSAID than dogs. If the dose isn't really cat-specific, so, you know, I just prefer if, if I have, for me, it's usually Onsior or Rabinococcin. If I have that cat started on Onsior, I prefer just to leave it on the Onsior. Mixing and matching is a problem for a lot of reasons. One is the clearance is not the same, right? So you may be really overloading that cat with that NSAID. And then the other problem is if there is an adverse effect, you don't know which NSAID caused it. So you don't know if you can put that cat on either NSAID in the future if they need another anti-inflammatory drug. So I recommend not mixing and matching. That's a very good point about not knowing which drug, you know, is is the was the culprit, if you will. <laughs> And, and you kind of alluded to this, but, you know, given that kind of black box warning from Aloxacam on cats, do you have recommendations for, for general practitioners as clinicians? How do we talk to clients about the risks and benefits of continued use of NSAIDs in cats? Because we get a lot of questions and there's a lot of stuff, you know, that they're going to go find on the internet, et cetera, et cetera. Right. You know, and I think that point right there is where we should start. We are bad about this in veterinary medicine, but we need to be driving the owners to the websites that have valid scientific information. We know they're going to the to the web. We do it. Everybody does it. So we need to give them resources and send them to the right website. So at least they start with with truly scientifically valid information. And then you and I are probably the same. I think most of us that work with cats are the same. Working with that cat owner, first of all, to say, okay, um, you're afraid of NSAIDs, so let's start elsewhere then. We can start with a joint diet. Obviously, this would be chronic pain, like a joint diet or some other drug. Or if it's um, acute pain, we can try some buprenorphine, some Cimbidol. Um, So, you know, working with that owner so they know we care and that we are exploring the options. And then if that cat really needs that NSAID, emphasizing to the owner, we are veterinarians. We have veterinary degrees from veterinary schools. Um, unlike some of the information on the internet, and that we wouldn't use these drugs if we didn't feel they were safe, and we'll use the lowest dose, you know, the, the lowest interval, whatever that cat exactly needs, trying to gain their their comfort. And then, you know, sometimes Onsior is the easier one to talk to owners about because there isn't this black box warning because there isn't the wrong dose on the label. And so the information on the internet is more favorable. And not that that should be why we choose an inset, I, but I do like that one um, anyway. And the science is there. But trying to, to show them that here, here's the problem with the dosing and this one has the right dosing. You know, I have copies of the UK and it, European Union labels of both Luxicam and Onsior in my office drawer. And if owners are really interested, I pull them out and I go, look what happens in the whole rest of the world. <laughs> These drugs are used repeatedly. 
There are also, for the veterinarians, two good open access papers on using incense long-term in cats, one from the AAFP um, and the other one from the author Paolo Stigal. Um, so the, the information's out there, just finding a way to, to have the time to sit down and share it with the owner. And what I'll do for chronic pain a lot of times is just say, I really think your cat needs an incense. Let's give it just one dose and see if it makes a difference. And when the pain is moderate to severe to the point I'm pushing an inset, it usually makes a difference. So that helps too. Those are really good tips and tricks as well. Thank you for that. This conversation has been so insightful. I have really just enjoyed it. Before we sign off though today, there's actually a little game that I like to play with our guests. It's not really difficult. It's just a few would you rather type questions. You can just answer off the top of your head. There's no right or wrong answers. It's just for fun. Would you want to give it a shot? You, this sounds like fun. I do want to, I do want to give it a shot. Okay. All right. Let's get started. Would you rather catheterize a female dog or a block tomcat? Block tomcat because that's the patient that really needs to be catheterized. Oh. Is it correct to say renin angiotensin aldosterone system or renin angiotensin aldosterone system? Oh, you know, I learned it renin, but you can tell by the Texas accent that uh, maybe I'm not the right one to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Would you rather remove a pharyngeal polyp or a cuterebra? Oh, gosh, you know, cuterebras are totally fun, but that pharyngeal polyp, again, that's the patient that really needs our help. So I'm going to pick that one, even though it's more boring. Okay. And then this one might be hard for you after our previous conversation. Would you rather practice without gas anesthetics or without local anesthetics? I would rather practice without gas anesthetics. The gases are really good, but I can do anesthesia with propofol and alfaxlone and ketamine and telazole. But doing the best level of analgesia without local anesthetics, nah, gotta have them. All right. And then last question. Would you rather have a crystal ball that can diagnose any condition, but then you would have to treat it or would you rather have a magic wand that would treat anything, but you'd have to diagnose it correctly first? Ooh, that is really good. Ooh, you know, the, the crystal ball is probably more appropriate, but there's always something intriguing about a magic wand. I pick the wand, the Harry Potter in me picks the wand. Yeah, the Harry Potter in me picks the wand as well. Oh, this was so fun. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. Really appreciate the chance to talk about pain management. This is very, very exciting for me. And uh, congratulations again on your recent election. And we wish you all the best. Great. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time and your interest. And for everybody listening, really appreciate your time and interest too. Thanks again to today's guest for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. You can also listen to our podcast on our website at cliniciansbrief.com podcasts. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at cliniciansbrief and on Instagram at clinicians.brief or drop us a line at podcast at briefmedia.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a brief media production. 
produced by Alexis Ussery, sound by Randall Stupka, and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.